0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India, by Janardan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Better Half, Women in Ancient India. A few episodes back, we asked you to imagine yourself in ancient India, And considered some of the roles that society might have offered you Brahmin, warrior, monk, or farmer. But let's not forget the approximately 50% chance that you would have been a woman. As in other pre modern literary traditions, ancient Indian writings were composed mostly by men and mostly for men. Women made up half the population, but from the point of view of these authors, they were not the better half. A classic statement of misogynism can be found in the laws of Manu. A wife, should do nothing independently even in her own house. Though her husband be uncouth and prone to pleasure, though he has no good points at all, the virtuous wife should ever worship her lord as a god. Many of the other texts we've been discussing in this series so far seem to express the same attitude. Discussions of reincarnation took it for granted that it would be worse to be reborn as a woman than as a man. Political treatises excluded women from leadership of the state and philosophical wisdom was usually represented as the privilege of men. It was men who taught other men to achieve liberation through renunciation, knowledge, and self-discipline, even when the men in question were gods, like Indra or Krishna. Yet the life of renunciation was open to women as well as men. There were nuns in both the Buddhist and Jaina communities, though, as we'll see, this was not uncontroversial, and nuns did not enjoy the same status as monks. On occasion, we find both Hindu and dissident literature acknowledging that women can reach moksha, or liberation. More remarkable still are the female thinkers and sages who turn up in the Upanishads and the Mahabharata. We find depictions of women holding their own with men or even defeating men in philosophical argument. Still, these texts rarely, if ever, challenge the assumption that women are generally inferior to men. Allowed to participate in philosophical debates, the female thinkers of Indian literature are not separate, but neither are they equal. To get some sense of the status of women more generally, we can turn once more to the Atashastra of Kautilya, the political treatise that reveals so much about the society over which the ideal king would rule. Especially its third book has a lot to say about women, and it makes for rather grim reading. It lays out rules concerning the beating of wives, the fines to be levied for women who flirt, and a scale of punishment for rapists, with those who rape slaves treated more leniently than those who assault free women. Cautilia recognizes a type of marriage that is effectively just the result of abduction, though on the bright side, he does say that in such a case the wife's property will not be transferred to the new husband. It is mostly husbands who can initiate divorce, Even if there are cases where a wife can leave her husband, for instance if he goes abroad for a prolonged period. In general, the Atashastra's interest in women is largely confined to the regulation of sexual activity and the transfer of property within families. What of the more religious aspects of Brahmanic culture? An important role was reserved in Vedic practices for the wife of a sacrificer. In fact, though only men could sacrifice, the ritual could be effective only if the wife was present. As one text puts it, a full half of oneself is one's wife. As long as one does not obtain a wife, therefore, one can never be reborn, for he then remains incomplete. But again, the wife is certainly not the husband's better half. The wife's role is, above all, to enable the husband to achieve his sacrificial purposes. When women feature in the symbolism attached to rituals, it is usually in the form of comparisons between ritual objects and her sexual organs. Sex itself is also laden with ritual overtones, as when we read in the Upanishads that a man can use knowledge to acquire the merits of a woman through intercourse. Women can acquire the merit of men too, but without the part about knowledge. The virtue of women is all-important, Not because we should care so much about women being virtuous, but because the virtue of a man's wife will have karmic benefits for him. Along similar lines, the Upanishads present marriage as having, above all, the purpose of providing a man with children, or rather with sons. Through the wife, the husband quite literally reproduces himself, so that when he sees his son, it is like seeing his own face in a mirror. The father is the same as the son, as one text puts it, and the son is the same as the father. This father-son relationship finds its ultimate expression in the so-called rite of transfer. In this ritual, a man and his son would lie one atop the other so as to pass on karma and vital functions from one generation to the next. In fact, the Vedic tradition often seems to assume that the self that belongs to each of us, the Atman, has a gender, and you'll never guess which one. The self is associated with male gods like Purusha and Prajabati, and we hear of the Atman producing female body from his own and then immediately engaging in sexual intercourse with her. Of course, the Upanishads recognize that women, and for that matter animals and perhaps even plants, have an inner self. So the message would seem to be that, at core, we are all men, even those of us unfortunate enough to be living our current life in female bodies. Here, incidentally, we have one of the reasons why asceticism was such a radical development within Indian culture. Renouncing the householder life, as did Buddhist and Jaina monks, meant, among other things, renouncing sex and procreation. Their vow of chastity was not just a form of self-discipline, but a departure from deeply held ideas about the transference of karma, and even of the self, from parent to child. But if chastity was a dramatic gesture on the part of men who became monks, it was downright shocking when women renounced family life. A woman of the householding class who became a nun was defying her dharma twice over by rejecting the duties of both class and gender. The task of the kshatriya warrior is to fight, and the duty of the humble shudra is to serve his betters. Likewise, woman has a special kind of dharma, her task is to be a devoted wife and to bear children. Monasticism offered an escape from these expectations. Much as ancient Christian women turned to asceticism to avoid the constrictions of family life, so Buddhist and Jaina nuns may have taken their vows in order to live a life that was in a sense less cloistered, and certainly held out greater prospects of individual fulfillment. Unsurprisingly, this was seen as problematic, even within the Buddhist and Jaina movements. As we mentioned last time, the Digambara branch of Jainism includes nudity within its severe ascetic practices. Since it was thought that women could not decently or safely follow the lead of their sky-clad brethren, they were effectively barred from the perfect renunciation that would lead to liberation. The Shvetambara Jainas, by contrast, believe that women can achieve this goal. They have even claimed that one of the Ford makers – the line of ancient teachers up to Mahavira who taught the way to liberation, was a woman. As for the Buddha, he was no stranger to radical ideas, but according to some stories, even he had a hard time accepting the notion that women should join his community of renouncers. Nuns were admitted to the Buddhist Sangha only a few years after the Buddha began to accept men as monks. When he relented by ordaining his own aunt, it was with misgivings he is quoted as stating that a monastic community that includes women is like a field afflicted by mildew, and that with this change in the rules, the future lifespan of his teaching would be halved from 1,000 to 500 years. Even once the nuns were admitted, they were made subservient to the monks and required to submit to their authority. But this could still seem preferable to staying at home as a good wife. One Buddhist nun rejoiced in her freedom from three things, mortar, pestle, and my crooked husband. This is a quote from a work included in the Buddhist Pali canon, and devoted entirely to women, an anthology of poems called the Terigata. Though the women it describes have refused to live as the consorts of men, the text itself is a companion to a second work, all about Buddhist monks, the Teragata. Some passages are found in both texts with fairly small changes from one to the other. For example, both include a story with a chaste hero who rebuffs a seduction. In the female version of the story, a nun is approached by a sexual predator and tries to dissuade him by discoursing on the decaying nature of bodily things. She describes her own body as a corpse and as a painted puppet. When this doesn't work, she removes one of her eyes. Enhance it to her would-be seducer, which does the trick. Note to Oedipus, it's better to tear out your eyes before getting into an unwise sexual relationship. The passage is typical of the Terigata, which is full of meditations on decay, illness, and death, all in aid of the suppression of bodily desires. Indeed, this theme is more prominent in the Terigata than in its partner text for male Buddhist monks. This may suggest that the authors, who may of course have been male, believe that women are more prone to the lure of bodily pleasure than men. These possibly sexist assumptions notwithstanding, the Gata is remarkable for its assumption that women can indeed achieve liberation. What about Hindu literature? We've seen that the Upanishads and laws of Manu can easily be mined for evidence of appalling attitudes towards women. But that isn't the whole story. As so often with these ancient texts, the laws of Manu contain passages that lean in the other direction, including one that allows women to pursue the life of a wandering ascetic. As for the Upanishads, we've already seen them giving women a significant role in ritual practices, and the same goes for philosophical debate. Back in episode 4, we saw that in the Great Forest Upanishad, a female sage named gargi Vachaknavi goes toe-to-toe with the philosophical hero Yajnavalkya. Admittedly, she is silenced by him in debate. She's told that she is going too far when she repeatedly asks what underlies each of a successive series of cosmic principles. Keep this up, Yajnavalkya warns her, and your head will explode. Still, Gagi outdoes the other male Brahmins who are in attendance. She acknowledges Yajnavalkya's preeminence when they do not, And threats about shattering heads notwithstanding, she is ready and able to question him a second time after being left unsatisfied by his first series of answers. Nor is that the only scene featuring Yajnavalkya and a female interlocutor. Elsewhere in the Great Forest Upanishad, he has a discussion about the self with his wife, Maitreyi. Again, we talked about that in a previous episode. This scene begins with Maitreyi asking her husband, How she can attain immortality. Notice that she's not asking how she can help Yajnavakya to live forever. It is Maitreyi who wants to achieve this for herself. Given the historical and religious context, this might seem presumptuous, but Yajnavakya is far from affronted. To the contrary, he favors Maitreyi over his second wife precisely because of her philosophical keenness, which is contrasted to the other wife's interest in nothing but womanly matters. Furthermore, Yajnavalkya seems to see the relation between two spouses in unusually equal terms. We are not surprised when he says, it is out of love for oneself that one holds a wife dear, but very surprised that he also says, it is out of love for oneself that one holds a husband dear. In keeping with its promise that it contains all things, the Mahabharata also features several interesting and powerful female characters. The most obvious example is Draupadi, the wife of all five Pandava brothers and thus a major character in the epic. Like Arjuna and other male heroes, Draupadi is honored with portentous predictions upon her birth. She will lead the Kshatriyas to their doom. And she does indeed go on to urge warlike behavior, castigating one of her husbands, Yudhisthira, for his failure to follow the warrior Dharma. She has good reason for her stance, though, having been put up as a gambling stake and treated with great disrespect at the fateful dice game that launches the conflict between the two branches of the family. Draupadi also gives us a counterexample to the notion that ancient Indian texts were aimed solely at men. Within the narrative framing devices of the epic, Draupadi and other women often play the role of an audience for various stories and lessons. These women make claims to knowledge and are seen as potential learners of the teachings that the Mahabharata seeks to impart. This fits with a tradition related about the entirety of the Mahabharata, which is that it was written for women and the members of the lowest class or shudras. If it is a fifth Veda, it is a Veda for everyone whereas the other Vedas are for the priestly and ruling classes. This notion doesn't sit so well with the Mahabharata's obsessive interest in warrior dharma, but it does find an echo in the Bhagavad Gita. Here, Krishna teaches that even women and shudras can attain liberation through devotion to him. And another section of the Mahabharata offers what may be the most astonishing example of a female philosopher in antique India, Sulabha. Her story is found in a section of the epic in which Bhishma, lying on his deathbed, is explaining techniques of liberation to Yudhishthira. He tells of a king named Janaka, who claims that he has managed to achieve liberation even while carrying out his royal duties. Word of this reaches Sulabha. She has achieved liberation the old-fashioned way, by rejecting the life of a householder and wandering as a rootless ascetic, and she finds it hard to believe that Janaka has really attained spiritual freedom while living as a king. So Sulaba does the obvious thing, uses her yoga power to transform her appearance into that of a stunningly beautiful woman, teleport to the king's court, and implant her mind into his body so that the two of them can have an internal dialogue within Janaka's soul. King Janaka is the first to speak, and he does so in arrogant and disdainful terms he boasts that he has reached freedom without asceticism but only through knowledge, which has enabled him to resist all forms of attachment. For him, it is the same whether someone anoints his right arm or cuts off his left. This ethic of unattached action is of course the same as the teaching offered by Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, so we may be expecting his claims of liberation to be vindicated, but Janaka begins to seem a less appealing figure as he rails against Sulaba. Who is this upstart young woman, he wants to know, who has dared to enter his royal presence and, for that matter, his very body? Now it is Sula Ba's turn to respond. She first instructs him on the qualities of a good speech, and promises to exemplify those qualities with her own remarks. These will be pleasing, neither too long nor too short, adapted to her audience and free of emotion. It's a characteristic feature of ancient Indian writings, the form of speech is inextricably bound up with the truth that it teaches. Once Sulaba begins her perfect discourse, she exposes the king's hypocrisy. Using ideas reminiscent of the Samkhya philosophical tradition, she argues that the true self is more fundamental than and underlies all other features of a person. Janaka's demand to know who she is and his interest in her gender and class show that he does not understand this basic truth. Furthermore, the life of a king is indeed incompatible with liberation. For he must constantly cope with the demands of other political actors and follow the dharma of the kshatriya instead of devoting himself solely to spiritual concerns, as Sulabha herself has done. In conclusion, our narrator praises Sulabha for her appropriate and convincing words. She does better even than Gargi in the Upanishads, besting her rival philosophically, and successfully challenging ideas that are actually defended elsewhere in the Mahabharata. Along the way, she defies and undermines traditional ideas about gender. According to her, the true self is neither male nor female, but is the underlying source of this and all other differences. And of course, the very depiction of such a character constitutes an affront to those same traditional ideas. It was often believed that women could not attain liberation, either because of their fundamental inferiority or because it was impossible for them to undertake rigorous ascetic practices. They would be too vulnerable without men to protect them. Sulaba wanders free, though. She has refused to act as a woman is expected to act, and she knows exactly what she is not doing. Does the story of Sulaba and the depictions of such figures as Gargi and Maitreyi in the Upanishads prove that there really were female Hindu sages in antiquity? It's hard to say. In this episode, we've mostly been asking what these texts tell us about the way women were seen, and assuming that they reflect historical reality, at least to some extent. But perhaps this is backwards. We could instead ask what the inclusion of such women tells us about the texts. It's striking, for example, that the strong female philosophers of the great forest Upanishad are both associated with the even stronger male philosopher Yajnavalkya. His willingness to debate with women on a more or less equal footing is unusual, if not unique. So the point of this may be to mark him as an innovative and idiosyncratic figure, rather than to insist that women can do philosophy too, never mind tell us that there really were female philosophers. It's also worth noting that characters like Gargi and Sulaba are presented in various ways as being masculine. Gargi refers to herself as a warrior, using a word with male gender, and Yajnavalkya's philosophy-loving wife, Maitreyi, is pointedly contrasted to his other, more feminine wife. Meanwhile, Sulaba delivers her speech from within the body of a man. What could more powerfully symbolize the fundamental fact That when these ancient women, whether fictional or real, speak to us, this speech is always filtered through the agency of men. With this look at the role of women in the early Indian texts, we have just about said everything we wanted to say, or if not that, then everything we are going to say, before moving on to the proliferation of philosophical schools that defines the age of the sutra. First, though, we want to follow the example set by Yajnavetya, and let someone else have her say. One of the most striking and important features of texts like the Upanishads, the Gita, and the Buddhist canon is the interweaving of philosophical and religious themes. So, it's well worth your sacrificing a few minutes to listen to an interview on this topic, especially since we'll be graced with the presence of an expert on the religious themes of Indian philosophy, Jessica Fraser. That's next time, as we bring to an end the series of episodes on the origins of the history of philosophy in India.